It's question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, across my channel, question pops in your brain. Just write it down. I'll gather them up and I will answer them here and stick around. A great guest answer again from the American Astronomical Society, Jason Wright, who is sort of one of the best SETI researchers, thinkers, uh, answers a question about aliens. So uh, stick around for that. All right, let's get into the questions. Xanator. I'm partial to multiple great filters. Maybe with each new strife in new tech way of life, there's a chance of destruction. Maybe we're just really, really lucky. Honestly, though, we have insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Yeah, so instead of the possibility of one great filter, of course, this idea that there's some event that hits uh, life that prevents it from becoming a spacefaring civilization, instead of there just being one, there could be many of them, right? The first filter would be the, the shift from single-celled uh, life to multicellular life, and that's one that we have already passed. And that makes sense. And, and, and you know, while life itself, single-celled life, arrived on Earth pretty much instantaneously the moment that it could, multicellular life only showed up on Earth like 500 million years ago. So it took a long time for that development to occur. So it could very well be that that filters out most of the star systems and planets in the universe. And then there are the ones that come ahead. There, you know, we had the opportunity to, to have global pandemics. We um, have uh, we had the chance to have a nuclear apocalypse. There's been many times there's been asteroid impacts, and then there are all the future ones. These crazy science experiments and the and the robot uprising and 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 un other mysteries. And it could very well be that that you have to pass through 20, 30, 40 of these moments to be able to actually come out the other side. And so far, even though there's 200 billion stars in the Milky Way, no life form has made it through all of those filters, all those gates to reach the end. We've made it through a bunch, maybe five, six, 10. Uh, we've got more to go and hopefully we will, we will make it. And that is definitely sort of a more statistical way of just considering this idea of the great filter. So more filters yet to come. Let's keep dodging, ducking, weaving, and avoiding them until we get there. Richard. Regarding slowing down when entering Mars' atmosphere, why not build a rocket in space, allowing multiple trips into space so that you can add on more fuel? And that way, you can add the fuel, which would then be used to slow down when entering the Mars' thin atmosphere. We talked about how hard it is to land heavy payloads on the surface of Mars. We've dedicated whole episodes to this. And the gist is, is that the Martian atmosphere is both too thin and too thick. It's too thin to allow just a pure you know, aerodynamic entry where you re-enter, you use the atmosphere to slow yourself down and you land nice and safe like you can do on Earth and like it's super easy to do on Venus or Titan. But the air is too thick to do a purely propulsive landing where you just go into orbit and then your orbit gets lower and lower and then you slowly cancel out your velocity and then you just land nice and smoothly on the surface like they do on the moon. Although we've seen that a, even then a propulsive landing with no atmosphere is still really hard to land on the moon. And so you do have atmosphere and so even if you're coming in at velocity you're gonna have to deal with that atmosphere. If you come in too quickly you'll skip off the atmosphere out into space. If you come in too slowly um, you know, you're going to get slowed down, but you're still going to smash into the surface of Mars. So you need some way that is a combination of both. And as the, as the 
amount of payload that you're trying to get down to the surface of Mars goes up, the amount that you can depend on, say, an aerodynamic system or parachutes or things like that just goes away. And you have to focus on, on what you've got to work with. And absolutely, the plan for, say, the SpaceX Starship is for them to launch multiple Starships into orbit, and then they'll dock, they'll transfer fuel to one ferry spacecraft that's then going to make the trip, and it's going to leave Earth fully fueled to make the journey to Mars. And then when it arrives at Mars, it's going to turn around, it's going to enter the atmosphere, use as much aerodynamic braking as it can, and then it's going to fire its rockets for as much as it has to to be able to slow itself down and land on the surface of Mars. And the question, it's not that that's necessarily impossible. The question is just what is the amount of fuel that it's going to require that will leave it with amount, the amount of cargo that it can deploy to the surface of Mars? And that's just the question. Um, it might be that it's going to take more fuel than people are anticipating, and so less cargo can make it, which means more flights are going to be required. And it, and, and it might be that, in fact, you know, it doesn't work at all. It has to be a full propulsive landing. And as you said, the spacecraft goes to Mars, goes into orbit for a while, and then, you know, gets everything nice and ready to go, and then does a full propulsive landing down to the surface of Mars. We still don't know. Um, more tests will be required. And so hopefully, you know, those first flights from Starship to Mars will test out and find out if just the flight plan that SpaceX is planning is going to work or they're going to have to make modifications. And it may very well be, you know, Mars eats spacecraft for breakfast. We might find that there's just going to be smashed up Starship after smashed up Starship as they try to figure this out until they finally crack it. And, um, you know, the way the Soviets tried to figure out how to land on Venus. Or it might be they'll stick the landing the first time. And that's what I hope, obviously. Uh, but we will find out. It is going to be complicated. It's going to be challenging. It is, it is not simple, but it is absolutely achievable. And I really look forward to them figuring it out. Rat Dat Boy, could we put a light on the moon as proof when we land there again? When we do return to the moon, the proof of the mission happening, of course, is going to be the launch of this enormous rocket that will be taking off and flying into space. And then tracking systems around the world will watch this rocket as it makes the flight from the Earth to the moon as it goes to the deep space gateway. Um, and of course, the nations that are involved in its construction will be watching, and the nations that weren't involved and are maybe in competition would like to get there first, they'll be watching. Um, and then of course, the astronauts will return to the gateway, they'll come back to Earth, they'll re-enter the Earth's atmosphere in this capsule that will be clearly visible as it's re-entering, and then it'll land, and then they will come out, they came from space, and then they come out of their capsule carrying moon rocks, right, from space. So there will be plenty of, uh, of evidence that this happened. And of course, when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, they put the retroreflectors down on the surface of the moon. And so anybody with a high enough power laser can shoot it at the moon, the light bounces back, and so and you point it a little away from that spot, and the light doesn't bounce back. It's only when you point right at the retroreflectors. And so that's even better, because you don't need to have a power source on the moon. You just have something that's highly reflective that was provided there from Earth. So, and I think, like, who cares that there are people who don't believe that the moon landings happened? And when the moon, you know, people don't believe that Elon Musk sent his Tesla into space. You see all the conspiracy theories about that? Every day that goes by, as there is more infrastructure in space, as we have better GPS systems, when the Starlinks are flying over, when the International Space Station is flying overhead, 
people are still, you know, they're just going to make up more and more complicated explanations for why they think um, these things are there, right? What's the ISS? It's a hologram, really, right? For people are able to project a hologram into space. So anyway, we don't need to prove that we went to the moon. We won't need to prove that we went to the moon again. We just go to the moon. We just use space, fly to space, and just continue on in this ongoing exploration of the cosmos. James Huffman. JWST isn't going to launch, is it? Oh, James Webb is going to launch. Um, uh, we did a video, I guess, what, a few months ago talking about this March 2021 date, and now it looks like the timeline is maybe going to be pushed back to July, right? But originally, James Webb was supposed to launch in 2010, so we're like 10 years after, and the budget is higher. But at this point, where we stand today, it is a telescope that is essentially constructed, that is sitting in its facility in California with some additional tests, some last minute fixes, and then it's going to get put into its cargo ship and sent to uh, French uh, Guiana to launch into space in, in just over a year now. So we are on the final stretch. It is absolutely going to launch. And it's funny, like today, here we are thinking about this mission and all we can think about is how it's not going to launch, how it's been delayed, et cetera, et cetera. But I promise, once it launches, once it makes it safely to its final orbit, then all we're going to think about is where's the science? Let's see some more science. Let's see some more pictures. Let's learn some more about the distant cosmos. And this time when we had to wait and be patient will end. But, you know, to have a couple of extra months put on to the end of the, of the launch window is not a big deal. We can handle it. We can be patient. So just wait a couple more months. It'll launch. It'll be successful. And the science will flow. Chris Eastman. Late to the party, but hoping you see this. Wait, so the James Webb could locate signs of life, but what else would be needed to confirm that it is actually life? One telescope reading isn't confirmation, if that makes sense. Yeah, the whole point with scientific exploration is that you're building up this story layer by layer, discovery by discovery, paper by paper, piece of evidence after piece of evidence. It is this gigantic mystery, right? Are we alone in the universe? It is the most complicated, most important scientific question that humanity has possibly ever asked. And so when we search for the answer, we want to be really correct about the answer. Um, so yeah, I mean, it could very well be, right, that, that the TESS satellite has discovered tons of planets orbiting other stars, and some of those are the perfect candidates for James Webb to take another look at. And James Webb looks at some of these planets and characterizes that there could be interesting chemicals in the atmospheres of those planets that could be maybe, possibly, under our models, indicative of life. And then right? The mystery deepens. Then you're going to see other spacecraft launch. Then, and there's going to be the, like, say, you know, it's the Proxima Centauri is where that atmosphere has been seen. Then you're going to have the Proxima Centauri Explorer, which is going to be a special mission that's designed to do one thing, which is only look at Proxima Centauri for a decade and slowly tease out all the individual elements. And there'll be other missions and other research that's going to go on. It's just going to go on and on and on, building up this case of evidence that there is life out in the universe. And as new interesting discoveries are made, then that will lead the, the, the development of new missions and new experiments and new 
fields of study, right? There will be proximacentologists who, um, who have spent their entire life studying and trying to figure out what's going on in Proxima Centauri. Um, and then eventually our first probes will be sent to with the right instruments that, we, that were figured out because of the work that we did today. So if James Webb does find some some really interesting hint that there's something going on there, that will just be the beginning of this just long line of ongoing work for us to build the case and really understand what's going on in the universe around us. This isn't going to happen overnight. We will not know the answers to these questions deeply in our lifetimes, in our children's lifetimes, but it still is worth doing the work, doing the research, doing the search. Lewis Brown, how long till dangerous cosmic rays die down so that we won't be exposed? That is an amazing question. Um, and it's actually very complicated. And I kind of have like a rough answer on this question. And I actually couldn't find a really simple answer to it. And I went out onto Twitter to try and get a better answer. So let me just rephrase the question first, right? So there are these cosmic rays, and they are like the most dangerous particles that are out there in space. They are the ones that are the hardest to block. They're the ones that are going to do a ton of damage to our DNA as we're out there in space. They're like bullets being fired from halfway across the universe and they rupture our DNA and, and can increase our risk of cancer down the road. Well, what causes cosmic rays? And, and astronomers mostly know, but still, there's still some mysteries about what causes some of the highest energy cosmic rays. But they're, but they're created in the most extreme events in the universe. So during supernovas, during colliding neutron stars, in the accretion disks around supermassive black holes. And there are these particles that are being blasted out in various directions. And they cross these incredible gulfs. And then they, you know, all the way, and then knock out your DNA, which is, you know, that's a that's a long, careful shot. Um, so what will cause these to go away, right? And there's a couple of ideas, right? Like, so one idea is the fact that a cosmic ray, um, actually, because it's a particle and it's passing through the intergalactic medium, it is burrowing through all of this, you know, really. There's gas in between galaxies and it's slowing down. And so cosmic rays will eventually run out of steam as they're moving through all of this gas. Uh, but it's, you know, enormous distances, billions of light years, but they will eventually uh, just run out of steam. So you can imagine some far future where the galaxies have moved so far apart from each other that as various events are creating cosmic rays inside of their uh, space, they are not able to cross the gulf between galaxies. But then at that point, there's, we won't be able to see any other um, galaxies. And then the other idea is sort of one based on time, which is that the kinds of events that produce cosmic rays will eventually stop. All of the large stars will have gone supernova. All of the neutron stars will have collided. All of the supermassive black holes will have eaten everything in their surroundings and then have run out of food to, to generate uh, dangerous particles. And, and so there will be some time in the, in the distant, vast distant future when the space weather, when the really dangerous radiation in space finally dies down. Um, but, uh, you know, you're looking at, again, billions, trillions, quadrillions of years uh, before these happen. And then the other possibility is, of course, that the particles themselves will decay when protons decay. It could be like, you know, a Google years from now um, that cosmic rays have been passing through space and they will finally decay away. So it's a great question. And, th and this is just sort of my rough 
take on it. Um, but if there's you know anyone with more of an astrophysics uh, background, do you want to dig into it? My favorite answer on Twitter came from Thad Zabo, who has done some work with us uh, in the past, uh, appeared here on the Guide to Space. So I'm going to put a link to his answers in the show notes so you can follow that up further because it was sort of great. But like, if somebody wants to do a paper, maybe this is a paper. Anyway, uh, great question. Scott Danger. Fraser, if we want to get back to the moon so fast, why don't we just take the old designs of the lander and Apollo capsule and update the computers and use that? It's a proven design that has already been made and tested. Even if we lost some of the designs, reverse engineering the systems should be cheaper and faster than starting from scratch. When you look at the space launch system with the Orion capsule on top of it, it is essentially the Saturn V with the Apollo uh, parts on top, right? You've got this gigantic rocket, but in the case of SLS, it's a hydrogen-oxygen rocket with solid rocket boosters on the side, while the Saturn V had uh, kerosene engines. Um, but the Orion capsule on the top is very similar to the Apollo capsule, sort of same shape same uh, you know thing, designs fed into it. Um, it's got a very similar escape system from what was on the Apollo system. So, so the, obviously the engineers who worked on this system looked at all of the discoveries that have been made, all of the learning that's happened over a long period of time and built that into the designs for the Space Launch System, Orion, etc. The one kind of unknown right now is what the landing system is going to look like. It looks like it's going to be provided just by a commercial provider. Maybe Blue Origin is going to provide a lander and they're going to have their own system for doing that. And so NASA is just going to write a check. They're going to get a lander and other people will get that same lander because it'll be more of like a commercial enterprise, which is sort of a more modern idea to think about this. So I think that's actually a, a pretty good idea. The SLS is inherited its design from the space shuttle that really when you like look at the original space shuttle right you've got the the main fuel tank you've got the two solid rocket boosters the sls is the same thing it's just that the 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 middle part is the core stage is a lot longer but it uses that more proven design of the apollo missions of having the capsule of having an escape system that allows across the entire flight profile to be able to for the astronauts to escape so but it's using all of the hardware and technology that was used as part of the space shuttle which is kind of smart right to take advantage of all that knowledge and all that tooling and all of the those engines that you had with the space shuttle so you know the united states took this detour into the space shuttle and now they've come back to the space launch system and we can obviously argue about whether that was a great idea or a bad idea but um, but that's where they are. So it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to use that technology and yet at the same time adapt it into the shapes that worked very well with the Apollo program. So it feels to me like they're already doing that. And then at the same time layered on all this new modern technology and new developments in material science and, and, and so on to build this new system. Um, while say something like Starship with SpaceX is a completely different idea. A fully reusable two-stage rocket, the way that it looks, the fuel that it uses for its, its methane rocket, everything is different about this thing. It is a risk. And so you've got to decide, do you go back and do the stuff that you already did, or do you take risks and come up with new ideas and move in new directions? And Space Launch System is more 
a look back to the methods of the olden days than it really is that that jump into a new technology in the way that Starship is. But fortunately, we get to have both of those experiments run simultaneously. We get to see SLS and we get to see Starship and hopefully one or both of those is going to work great and then we move on to whatever comes next. Lori, Fraser's so negative. A little bit hope you have, I hope. I do not want to be alone in the universe. When people ask me whether or not I think that we're alone in the universe, and my answer is, I think we're alone. Um, it is not because that's what I want. It is only because the it feels really compelling to me that there should be some kind of evidence of aliens out there in the universe somewhere. And so if there is no evidence so far, then my default position has to be that it doesn't exist. Um, but I am happy to be convinced otherwise the moment evidence exists. And of course, I've dedicated this whole channel, really, you could almost say that I've dedicated my life to this question, to this topic. We keep coming back to it. I dedicate lots of episodes about this, which is like, how are we going to look? Where are we going to look? What would it look like if we saw it? How will we know that we're not alone? What are all the reasons why we might be alone? I am absolutely fascinated by this topic. And I think it's important to just, you know, you don't want to um, make assumptions without any kind of evidence to back it up. And instead, you want to be just careful and conservative about what you think you know. And right now, I don't know anything. So I don't want to presuppose any answer to this question. Instead, I just want to look. I just want to be curious about the universe and dig into every piece of research that goes on that offers up a clever new way that maybe we can find out more information. And I think that's the only honorable way. It's the only honest way that you can think about our place in the universe and the lack of evidence so far. Um, and I know lots of people disagree. And I think that we have different standards for evidence. What does it take to convince you that a thing is real, right? If a person tells you that they saw a spaceship, is that enough for you to believe that? And then go on with your life and go, okay, well, you know, that problem solved. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Aliens confirmed. No, I want to see them. I want to see their ship. I want to go to the planet. I want to see evidence. And so until then, I will remain unconvinced. And my gut is that we're alone or that we're first. Right? That's kind of cool that we're the first uh, advanced civilization in the universe, not the only one. And then others will arrive after us. And then, of course, we will, be, uh, we will gladly greet them into the Galactic Federation. Dustman, what are the best sources for legitimate scientific papers? Honestly, I get tired of all the pop science stuff. You are on the journey to go from, you know, the, the pop science of clickbait cosmic void, black hole, warp drive, wormhole stuff into a more detailed and fascinating investigation into the science that is going on all the time. And it is this journey that I hope that a lot of the people have gone through as they follow this channel and others where you're like, you just want to talk about Star Trek and black holes and all that kind of stuff. And then after a while, you're like, okay, I'm bored of black holes. What's like, what's actually happening? What's new? And you're excited about these, these new advancements and incremental developments and discoveries in space and astronomy. And I feel like that's 
my my job is to sort of be that that next level and eventually if you want to take it further then go and and you know become an astronomer you know but i think that next level is to start to dig into these original sources and there's some wonderful options out there a lot of the times i will post links to all of the scientific journals that i'm talking about in every single one of my of my videos you know i may have 20 sources some are official documents from the European Space Agency or NASA and other times there will be a document to an actual research paper or I'll mention it in the video. The best place to go just in general if you want just like one spot it's a place called archive arxiv.org uh, and specifically it's the astroph astrophysics subsection of that and every day about 80 new research papers are posted most of them are incomprehensible you know uh, the 21 centimeter line at the Lyman Alpha Forest, uh, the Cosmic Dark Age, um, you know, the, you would require a degree in astrophysics to understand. But in many cases, they're very understandable. And, and, and if you want, you can gloss over the math and just read the conclusions and sort of get an understanding of, of what's going on. And a ton, like one of my greatest sadnesses is, is how much amazing research goes through this process but doesn't get popularized in the science media and now as there are fewer and fewer science journalists out there capable of doing this job uh, there's even less and less there's obviously the big hits you know here's the best picture of a black hole and here's the new picture of the sun and we just landed on the moon again right those will get covered in the press, but the more detailed work to look at the new research that's going on and appeal to a more advanced audience is, is harder and harder. And so I think for a lot of people, if you're interested, you got to go to the original sources. So archive is a great one. There's tons of other journals. Um, some are behind paywalls, which sucks. Um, but others are, are freely available. And so a good place to start, I will put links to all of the journals that I mentioned, and you can sort of build up a, uh, an idea of the places that provide this, uh, this news for you. But uh, this is great. Um, so follow on, uh, go to archive.org. Quantum flexible. What I would love to hear from those astronomers is an answer to what's it gonna take for you to believe that something is actually aliens when it's never aliens. As a counter to the, uh, <laughs> to the, rant that I went on earlier? Uh, that's a great question. And I thought I would bring on an actual uh, SETI researcher, astrobiologist, uh, astronomer, professor. Uh, I've interviewed him before. Uh, it's Professor Jason Wright from Penn State, uh, one of sort of the best thinkers on just the state of searching for evidence of advanced civilizations out in the universe. And here's his answer. Well, it's never aliens until it is, of course, and that's just like any discovery. You never find it until you actually find it. Um, there are two ways to approach the problem of looking for aliens. Um, one is to look for things that are odd that might be aliens, but might not be aliens, and those can give you what we call ambiguous technosignatures, if we're talking about technological life. Um, and then you can go looking for things that could only be from alien technology. So the most famous example there would be narrowband radio signals from traditional radio SETI with radio telescopes. You're looking for signals just like the ones we produce on Earth, except they're coming from space, and there's no natural way that those could ever uh, be produced 
Uh, and so if you see them, then you're done. You win. You know that you've found uh, aliens. So I like to see SETI as coming from two different approaches. One where we look at all the natural stuff, but look for the stuff that's weird and unusual. And then we hand those over to the folks that are looking for the unambiguous techno signatures so that they're not just shooting blind and looking everywhere in the sky, but looking at the most interesting targets. That was awesome. Thanks, Jason, for taking the time to answer the question. Uh, lots more of these guest questions coming from the American Astronomical Society, so stay tuned. Um, but again, thank you everyone who took the time to put in your questions. I have a great time with this every week. So as always, wherever you are, question pops in your brain, write it down, I'll gather them up, and I'll answer them here, and I'll see you next week.